in these series of sermons on Sunday mornings, thinking about uh, Matthew's gospel, our aim is very simple, and that's simply to, to read God's word together, try and be sure that we understand it, and then allow it to speak to us, allow God to encourage us and challenge us and do whatever he, he wants uh, as he speaks to us. So please have that passage open before you. The page number is 988. Um, let me pray just now for God's help. Father God, we thank you for that great story in the Old Testament of Samuel, a wee fellow living in the temple who heard a voice, didn't know who it was, but eventually was, was shown that this was your voice speaking to him. And his wonderful response to you was then, Speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Lord, speak to us, because we are your servants. We want to hear what you have to say, and we want to do the things you call us to. Amen. To try and understand this part of Matthew's gospel, we have to realize that Jesus is on a journey. He's, he's been on the road for some time now, and the incidents that we've been learning about have happened as he's been on that journey. So at the start of chapter 19, Matthew tells us that Jesus has left Galilee. So he's heading south into the area of Judea, and he seems to be around the Jordan River somewhere. By the time we get to verse 17 in chapter 20, we're told that Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. And in the opening verses of our passage, verse 29, we're told that Jesus is just leaving Jericho. Jericho's only 14 miles from Jerusalem. So he's on the last leg of the journey. He's within one day's travel of his destination. There's nothing casual or arbitrary about this journey that Jesus is on. It's not a, a Sunday run in the car around the countryside just to have a, a look around. He, he knows where he's going and why he's going there. You saw this in the passage that David looked at with you last week. In verse 18 of chapter 20, Jesus says to his disciples, We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death. They'll turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to death. There's nothing arbitrary here, nothing accidental Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. And he knows it. I think it's good to remember that in the context of this first incident then, the, the moment with the two blind men. These guys are sitting probably at the western gate of the city, uh, the one that faces towards Jerusalem, the one that the main road to Jerusalem comes out of. So this gate would have been busy with traffic, all, all times of the year, but particularly now as we're building up to the Passover. If you read the, the history of these times, it's possible that as many as about a quarter of a million pilgrims made their way from all parts of Israel and Judah up through Jericho into, into Jerusalem for the great festivals. So there's just an awful lot of traffic 
going through this gate. These blind men are sitting at the side of the road begging and they hear Jesus, the miracle maker, the healer, the guy who, who's helped so many people. They hear that he's passing by and they shout out for his attention, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd tell him to shut up. Um, but they shout all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. <coughs> now, I don't know about you, but I can see where the crowd are coming from. There's some visitor with a good reputation has arrived in your community. You don't really want the most embarrassing side of your city life to, to confront them. You'd rather keep all of that out of the road. So you can see why they're telling these blind men to shut up. Jesus is busy. He's got his own disciples with him. He's got a large crowd following. You can't expect him to stop to deal with with these two beggars. There's, There's beggars more than you need around Jericho. Jesus doesn't need to waste his time on these two. I can see where the crowd are coming from, even with that that very superficial understanding of the situation. But we know much more than the crowd. We know what Jesus is about to go and do in Jerusalem. We know of his mission. We know what lies ahead for him. We know of the the betrayal, the physical abuse, the, the shame and the agonizing death. With all of this on his mind, you could excuse Jesus for not being that interested in a couple of blind beggars sitting at the side of the road. Folks, I know what I'm like. I'll give money to the big issue lady on the days when I feel a bit up for it. When I feel of energy, time and energy and, and kindness to spare. But don't expect anything from me on the days when I'm preoccupied with the stuff that's weighing heavy on me. <coughs> Folks, Jesus is going to his death on the cross. This is the moment of all moments when you could forgive him for passing a blind eye to other people's needs. But look at Jesus. Here he is. He's the one who came to preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. That's what he said. Jesus had once told a story about this same road, this road that runs between Jericho and Jerusalem. On that occasion, a priest and a Levite passed by when they saw a situation of need, but not Jesus. You see, Jesus is the real deal. Jesus turns his Jericho Road story on its head, this time going not down from Jerusalem to Jericho, but from Jericho up to Jerusalem. He isn't preoccupied. He's not too holy or too religious, too caught up in his churchianity to stop and to help the person in need. Folks, I, I wonder what it would look like if we could start to look more like Jesus in this regard. What would our church end up looking like? 
if we learn to have the priorities of Jesus rather than those that we think a church and a church subculture should have. I've always found this next bit a bit strange and I'm going to offer you a suggestion of how I understand it. Uh, Whenever Jesus stops with the blind men, he calls the fellows over to him and he asks them a really weird question. He says, what do you want from me? Now, I'd always thought that was (laughs) pretty obvious. Jesus, the guys are blind. They want to see. So you read it and it looks very flat and it looks like there's nothing very interesting going on here. But I don't see it quite so, so simply anymore. These guys are blind. It's very possible that they've been blind from birth, or, or at least for a very long time. So they have become accustomed to their blindness. And the way of life that goes with it. They are used now to sitting at the side of the road day after day with the begging bowl in their hand with that endless stream of pilgrims going back and forward between Jerusalem and Jericho, throwing them a, a mixture of, of loose change, of scraps of food, uh, and, and short moments of understanding. That's the life these guys are used to. So whenever Jesus asks them, what do you want me to do for you? It would be the most natural thing in the world for them to say, Jesus, spare us a few quid. Give us something out of your lunchbox. Even just a kind word. Notice us. But they don't. They don't settle for that. It's an incredible moment of faith. They're not content with having help in their current circumstances. They want their their circumstances turned around. What do you want Jesus to do for you this morning, folks? Years of sitting by the Jericho Road have have shrunken our vision entirely. We've become so accustomed to our our, our very disabled ways of life that, that we settle for tiny crumbs of comfort. Tiny crumbs of comfort. We're bored, so we'll go for some retail therapy or internet pornography. We're stressed, so we we book ourselves a holiday or we buy the latest box set. We've got these huge gaping holes in our lives and we look for tiny sticking plasters to deal with them. When Jesus passes by, there's an opportunity for something much, much greater to happen. Jesus can arouse passions and desires in us that we've, we've forgotten that we even have. Like these blind men, we find ourselves wanting the whole deal. We're not content with a little bit. We want a lot. We want sight. We want salvation. We want to be transformed. The evidence of these blind men understanding Jesus fully and deeply comes actually after he restores their sight. We're told, Matthew tells us that that the guys 
started to follow Jesus. They knew life would never, ever make sense for them again unless they were with Jesus, unless they were learning from him, unless they were his men. This story of the blind men at the Jericho roadsides left us a, a powerful legacy. Early in the history of the church, this, this cry of the blind men was adopted. Uh, the Greek Kyrieleison, this liturgical phrase, Lord, have mercy on us. We say it in our church liturgies not because most of us have the same problem as these men. It's not because uh, we're blind, we, we lack sight. It's because there's a, a much greater blindness and darkness that we need God's help with. This miracle at the side of the road on the way to Jerusalem is only a hint of what's to come. As he gives these guys back their physical sight, we get a hint of what Jesus is all about. Taking the whole world out of darkness. Out of the sin that holds us. Out of death which threatens to end us. He, he releases, he gives sight. He calls us out of darkness into light. Folks, that's the healing that we all need. Lord, have mercy on us. It's a good cry for each one of us. I wonder have we received or begun to receive the mercy of Jesus Christ? When we move into chapter 21, we have Jesus finally arriving in Jerusalem. So he's traveled from Jericho up that road, the long, hard climb. Jericho, by the way, is the lowest city on earth, 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem's at 3,000 feet, only 14 miles between them. So you're, you're climbing all the time. It's a steep and an arduous journey. The first thing that we notice when Jesus arrives here in Jerusalem is that he's totally in control. I didn't always understand this about the, the narratives leading up to Jesus' death. I remember as a child and probably for much of my life having a sense that it all went horribly wrong. That Jesus was going to Jerusalem and, and things took a turn for the worse. But that's not what the gospel writers tell us. They show us that Jesus is the architect of this whole, uh, this whole experience. He is totally in control. And so we have him entering the city, telling his disciples that he needs a donkey and, and, and so on. Everything here is set up to show us that Jesus is a king. And uh, in verse 4, Matthew tells us as much. He uses one of these formulas that he uses in his gospel time and time again. He, he reaches back into the Old Testament, a prophecy about the coming king, and he shows how it applies to Jesus. Jesus is that king who was spoken of by Zechariah the prophet. See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. This, says Jesus, took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Now, there's no reason, actually, to think that anybody would have batted an eyelid to see a pilgrim arriving in the city on a donkey. There's nothing weird there at all. 
But things start to, to look a bit unusual once we get round about verse 8. This innocuous looking event takes a turn and it makes it the talk of Jerusalem. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This wasn't the done thing. You didn't take your cloak and throw it on the road in a dusty, stony Middle Eastern city. I suppose to put it bluntly, you don't know what's been up and down that road and what they've done on that road on their way in and out of the city. You don't in a hurry throw your clothes down on a road like that. You don't do it for a friend. You don't do it for a senior or respected member of your family. The only time you do this is when a king is coming. You don't cut branches off trees and spread them on the road just because you're excited. You do it only when a king is on his way. So Matthew's making the point crystal clear here. The disciples and the people who were with Jesus understood him as the king He was on his way into the capital city and he was making a statement that a king was arriving. This is Jesus' coronation march. Folks, another thing I can't help but notice in this passage is that Jesus is a very different kind of king. This isn't the way that kings normally would choose to make their entrance. They don't normally travel on a donkey. I'm just imagining a Roman soldier arriving at the scene. He's heard that there's a disturbance. He comes to have a look. He needs to get a handle on this. What's going on here? He needs to understand uh, the lie of the land here in the city. But this guy, he'd seen the Roman processions where they did this kind of thing right. He had seen the victorious general returning from the battle. He came with in a chariot covered in gold. He came with stallions pulling that chariot ahead of him with the wheels and the spikes flashing in the sunlight. Behind him, there were officers in shiny armor and at the very back of the procession in chains were the prisoners, the the latest victims of his conquest, living proof of what happens when you deny Rome. If Jesus had arrived in the city like that, then the city would have recognized him as a king. But it didn't. The city didn't recognize him in this way because he didn't come in this way. They only saw a simply dressed Galilean on the back of a donkey and a crowd behaving as though he was a king. You see the response of the city at the end of our passage? Who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. In October of last year, Hillary Clinton made a brief visit to the province. And I had just walked the kids down to school and was coming up uh, the Newtonards Road, as I do, and past Bell's Coffee Shop when I saw the the motorbikes uh, sweeping up both sides of the dual carriageway. They'd they'd closed that section of the dual carriageway between the Knock Junction and the Belmont Roundabout. So I stood and watched, because I'd heard in the news that Hillary was on her way. So I saw, I'm sure it was at least a dozen of these police motorbikes. 
And then I saw a cavalcade of black Land Rovers. Not one or two, not three, but four uh, gleaming black Land Rovers with, with blacked out glass. And you could make no mistake about it that it was some big shot in town. They stop the traffic, they make a grand entrance, and they display power. Not Jesus. Here he is, he's going out of his way to play down his entrance. There's an interesting thing going on, and we need to understand this. Jesus is not downplaying his kingship. He's allowing the people to throw their robes. He's letting them wave their palm branches. What he's doing, though, is he's taking the notion of kingship and turning it upside down. He's saying, yes, I am a king. Yes, I'm God's chosen king. But on these terms and like this, this is what it means to be God's Messiah. Jesus is on his coronation march. He's going into the city because he wants to be crowned king, and he will be. But his crown will be made of thorns. He's going because he wants to be enthroned, and he will be. But it'll be on a a Roman cross. This is our God, the servant king. And he calls us now to follow him, to yield our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. Tell me this. In the light of of Jesus' life, and his ministry, and now this coronation march, and then finally his death. How could any follower of Jesus Christ ever want to see themselves as grand? How could any follower of Jesus Christ with integrity make a big show of themselves? Our God is the servant king. He shows us a new way to use power and authority. Folks, as I preach this morning these two incidents together, I think of a new insight into their meaning. And I've come to see a common thread And it's focused around the question of Jesus in verse 32. What do you want me to do for you? He asks the blind men. The blind men, it turns out in this story, are the guys who can really see because they had the vision to ask Jesus to heal them. They asked Jesus to take them beyond their own circumstances, to take them into an entirely new world. It's the crowd in Jerusalem who are blind. They're the ones who have lost their sight. They're the ones who cannot see. Because all they can see in Jesus, all they can see in a Messiah, is someone who might bring them a victory against Rome. They can't even imagine a life beyond these current circumstances. They can't see anymore life beyond what they have in front of them. 
You see, Jesus came to do much more than to free them from Rome. He came to, to give liberty not only to the Jews, but to the whole world. He came not only to see Rome defeated, but sin and death and, and everything that keeps us from God. This crowd doesn't want enough from Jesus. They've limited horizons. Friends, I can't help but think as I read a, a passage like this that I don't want enough from Jesus. I don't expect enough from him. He stands here this morning before us and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Some of us haven't ever allowed Jesus to, to do that most important thing of all. We haven't allowed him, although we've heard his invitation a thousand times, we haven't allowed him to save us from our sins, to enter our lives in that way that, that makes us right with God. Where we say, and we're honest about it, and we say, Lord, I'm undone. I can't ever please you on my own terms, but I know that Jesus can. We haven't reached that point that the blind men did where we cry out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. And there are others of us today who, who probably can say that we've done something like that. At some point in the past, we, we've entered life with Jesus, but somehow, somehow our, our horizons have shrunk Circumstances have come in on us and we've been paralyzed by the way of life that we're living now. We've given up hoping that Jesus could, could transform us in the lives that we're living. And today he stands before us and he says, what do you want me to do for you? I wonder if this might be the day when I could say to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me, I want to see. I want to see again all that you have for me. I want to recover some of those hopes and some of that vision that I've left behind. Some of what you gave me and that's gone missing. Lord, have mercy on me. I want to see. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this upside down world which you rule. Thank you that we live in a world where the more we admit that we can't do it, the more you will do it for us. The more we admit our need of your mercy, the more that mercy will flow. The more we say that we can't see, the more you will give us sight and vision. Lord, we're amazed that you stand before us and you ask us what we would have you do. 
Lord, help us to be bold in our replies. Teach us to expect much of you. Everything. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.